Welcome to the Dermatology Interest Group Association podcast, or DIGA podcast, where we talk about everything from how to become a stellar dermatology applicant to interesting topics in dermatology. From research advice to interviewing tips, you will be prepared to follow the path to become a world-class dermatologist. How's it going, everyone? My name is Grace Hobayan, and I'm one of the hosts of the DIGA podcast. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Gabby Brokamp, who originally hails from Cincinnati, Ohio, and holds a bachelor's degree in biomedical sciences from the University of Alabama in Birmingham. She completed medical school at THE Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, and as of this recording, she is a PGY2 in the Categorical Dermatology Residency Program at OSU. We discuss some tips and advice for those who decide on dermatology a little bit later in medical school. So, without further ado, see you on the skin side. All right, everyone, welcome back to the DIGA podcast. I'm here with Dr. Gabby Brokamp-Kua. You recently got married. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) Yes, uh, and she's going to introduce herself. Hey, everyone. My name is Gabby. I am one of the PGY2s at Ohio State. I am one of the categorical dermatology residents. Awesome. Why did you choose to pursue dermatology? How did you know that was right for you? Oh man, this is such a big question, you know, and I thought a a long, long time when I was preparing for my applications and my interviews about this question and really what I wanted to say, but I think what I came down to is just all of the things that we get to do in Derm. I was one of those students that just like loved everything. I wanted to work with kids and adults and I loved the breadth of medicine, but I also always knew that I wanted to specialize in something and I was like, you know, I like procedures, but I think I'm too much of a busybody to be in the OR for hours at a time. And so dermatology really fell into this like perfect fit for me where I get to see people of all ages. I get to specialize in cutaneous diseases, but we also still have a ton of content overlap with diseases that originate in all of the other organ systems. And you just get to see a variety of patients. You know, I you see your very healthy 16-year-old acne patient, but you also see your very, very sick, like autoimmune vasculitis patient who really needs your help. So it's just, it's a, a really, a really neat field to go into. And I feel really lucky to be able to have matched into it. Yeah, absolutely. What were some of the other specialties that you were considering as you were going through med school? <laughs> yeah, you know, I always thought I was going to be a pediatrician. Um, that was my, that was my MO growing up. I loved kids. And for a long time, I didn't think I would like procedures. I didn't really like blood going up. And so everyone was a little surprised when I went into medicine, but found out that I love procedures. And then I didn't really find something I felt passionate about during all my PG rotations. There was nothing that I wanted to go home and read about. And then I got to rotate on derm and I realized that I can do peds and derm and do a little combo action. So it was, ended up being a good fit. (laughs) And so you go home and you do get excited to read about it. (laughs) Yes, I do. And you need to be because we read a lot in dermatology. Absolutely. There's there's not enough that can be learned in the span of med school. And and that's what residency is for. And, you know, that's something to be very excited about. And exactly. Yeah. Get extra gauze on hand so you don't see too much blood. But I'm sure by now you've (laughs) you've gotten over that. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I have gotten over that. I'd say it was about three days in a third year and you realize that you have to get over that. Just out of curiosity, was was there a particular trick you had to develop to get over your original like fear of blood? Oh gosh, you know, I think it's just like everything becomes normal. And I think as medical students, as you get further and further into your clinical years, things that just aren't normal to 90% of people in this world become very normal to you because you see it on a daily basis. You know, we see blood and needle sticks and procedures and all these things that are inflicting pain. And it just, you kind of normalize it at one point. 
I remember my first day of third year, I walked into my transplant surgery rotation into a nine hour liver transplant case. That was the bloodiest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I was like, well, <laughs> here we go. You're going to have to figure this out. And it's fine. You know, it doesn't even bother me one bit anymore. So all those people out there that get a little queasy, you're going to be a-okay. You see, that's that's one of the reasons why we call it the practice of medicine, because it's not you're not only just practicing skills and knowledge and stuff. You're practicing getting used to seeing blood in the first place. Yeah, right. Exactly. And remind me, was there a particular point in medical school that you decided on Durham specifically? Yeah, I decided pretty late. As I was saying, I was on that peds venture, but I think it was really on the forefront of my mind about halfway through third year but I don't think it was truly 100% until the end of my third year. So I had a whole lot of catching up to do during that third year of medical school. Yeah. Tell us about that catching up process. <laughs> what did, oh, what all do you have to do? I mean, you are grinding for a, a good solid few months in there. You know, I think if I had to give one piece of advice to students out there, it's just find faculty that want it almost as bad as you want that for yourself. I felt really lucky to find faculty at Ohio State that kind of took me under their wing and helped me find as many projects as I could in a short amount of time. I think they kind of just fuel your passion. You know, you got to come into it and know that it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of dedication, and you might have to sacrifice a few social events along the way. But ultimately, it was worth it. You just you need a few people around you who want that for you, too, and will give you those opportunities to make it happen. Yeah. And and, and tell us about some of the extracurriculars you did as well, because you founded the ultrasound community of practice for dermatology, because at, mm-hmm. um, at the Ohio State, there's lots of different ultrasound subgroups like interest groups yep yeah different exactly. organ systems so yeah, yeah what was what was that process like and how did that process sort of get started how did you know that yeah. you wanted to do that so you're exactly right and we get all and I know you know well Grace being at OSU yourself but we get a lot of ultrasound training at OSU and it starts from the first year and you can continue to expound upon that through years two three and four so we had this big umbrella of ultrasound and applying it into different specialties. And I would say nearly almost every single specialty at OSU was represented except for dermatology. And I think I never really occurred to me that there could be uses in dermatology, but man, oh man, I think we are just going to keep seeing more and more uses of ultrasound and dermatology. Um, And so it just kind of sparked some thoughts. I was like, let's look into this. Let's see what's out there. And there actually is a lot out there. What I found was that a lot of work is being done in Spain and Italy and the U.S. is catching up a little bit. We're definitely we're coming up and there's a lot of work being done now, but that wasn't always the case. Um, And so that year I had a lot of support from our ultrasound community, just being a really cool new thing to add to our curriculum. Uh, But I was learning myself right alongside everyone else that was a part of that organization and just about how we can use it. Um, and how we can build a curriculum to continue teaching students about why it's important, even if you are going to dermatology. What are some future directions or the the future of your involvement with sort of bringing ultrasound into dermatology more as we go forward? Yeah, you know, I think uh, there are so many ways I can go about this. And admittedly, I'm still trying to figure out how to keep up with all the studying and stay on top of my clinical knowledge. So I haven't 
I haven't started up a, a research project yet, but we, from what I hear, we do have a high frequency ultrasound on campus. So I'm hoping to do that soon. I think we have a few options, you know, in all of our pediatric clinics, which we do a lot at OSU. We see a lot of hemangiomas and different vascular growth and vascular malformations. And we usually refer them out for ultrasound. And so I think it would be pretty cool if we had enough training within our program to be able to just do that ourselves. We would expedite a lot of patient care. Um, And ultimately, some of those patients need higher um, definition imaging, which would be MRIs and things like that. But it would definitely expedite care. Another thing is even just surgical planning. You know, you're going to excise a lipoma or some sort of epidermal inclusion cyst. And you're looking at a pretty hefty size, but you really want to know how deep you have to go. Like, what is the diameter of this lesion? It just allows you to plan and allows you to make your incisions a little bit smaller because, you know, you don't have to extend beyond what your size is. And ultrasound would allow us to do that and just give us kind of better ideas of what we're looking into when once we cut into the skin. Um, there's also some utility in cosmetic procedures. People have started looking at ultrasound and calciphylaxis. Um, I mean, hydranitis, aperitiva, et cetera, et cetera. The list truly goes on. So I'm not sure what project I'll try to undertake first, but the list is long. Yeah, there's there's so many opportunities. And, you know, it always amazes me how far, you know, Europe has gone in a lot of these endeavors. And the fact that ultrasound has been used in America, even like in the 1900s, but that's not something I ever talked about in medical school really, or from what I can see from the outside looking in, not even so much in residency either. And so, yeah. 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 I, I mean, I totally agree with that. Even in residency, the, the path is not obvious about how to better train yourself and how to incorporate this. I think a lot of my learning and anyone else's learning who's interested in ultrasound within the field of dermatology is going to mostly have to be self-directed and really seeking out unique opportunities because it is just not something that we do frequently. And some of that is because the technology is new. The high frequency ultrasound probes are expensive. And so there are barriers at this time. So I think we'll just have to kind of find those special little um, opportunities where we can learn more and figure out how we incorporate this better. Yeah. Or I can try to put my engineering degree to good use and try to figure out how to build my own. <laughs> hey, when you do, let me know. I will keep you in the loop. Perfect. <laughs> and so going back to like extracurriculars in general, how much of your time was split between research specific activities versus other things like community service or other interest groups and whatnot? Yeah, you know, that kind of ebbed and flowed. I think during the first two years of medical school, I was pretty heavy on the um, community service fronts. I did, I ran a few organizations that were just pretty big about giving back to the community. I did a lot of like pediatrics type of organizations, like when we focus on nutrition and exercise and just teaching kids all about those facets of life and in hopes of preventing childhood obesity. So I did a lot more community service my first two years of medical school. And then I definitely shifted that attention towards research in the back half as we got closer to applications. I think if I were to do that again, I'd incorporate more derm research into the beginning. But at that time, I didn't know I wanted to do derm. So it was not quite possible just because I had not made that decision yet. Yeah. So then, so then when that decision was made, you kind of revved up the the research front as you had yep. mentioned earlier. Yep, exactly. And I went to the SPD, the Society for Pediatric Dermatology yeah. meeting or the, the conference a couple months ago. And 
there were so many people that that I talked to, you know, there are people that are applying or considering applying to pediatric preliminary programs. Mm-hmm. A lot of them were considering dual applying to Durham and Peds. There were plenty of people that they had either like finished a Peds, a full Peds residency, or were in the midst of completing a Peds residency before applying to dermatology. Did that ever factor into your particular application process, or did you just focus on only applying to dermatology? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. I really strongly considered applying initially to a pediatric residency program and then after completing that, applying to dermatology. And I spoke with a lot of people on this topic because I was really torn. I thought it would be really cool to have that full breadth of pediatrics and truly understand the ins and outs of pediatric medicine. But the thing that gets tricky at least that I've been counseled on is that you spend those first three years as a pediatric resident. So you're a PGUI one through three as a peds resident. And then you go to apply to dermatology. And there's something about the pay structure about how they, they hire you on as a PGUI four. And so I was told that what they have to pay you is a little bit different and it's a little bit more. And because of that, it's a little bit harder to match in the dermatology after completing a peds residency. I am not quoting any facts here. This was strictly the counseling that I had been given. And at that time, that was enough to sway me to just go for Derm. But I did apply to a bunch of pediatric residency intern and prelim years. And I I really loved the interviews that I got. The bummer is that they're a little more few and far between than the internal medicine residencies. And I was couples matching and the locations where I was interviewed for a pediatric prelim year just didn't really line up with our plans. So they weren't um, suitable options for me, but I mean, truly wonderful programs. And I would have been happy at any of them had the location matched up with staying with my partner. When you were going through the application process, how did you go about connecting with attendings, fellows, and residents, both in your home Durham department, as I guess you mentioned earlier about your research project, but also in institutions that were not your own, even even outside of places where you did away rotations? Yeah, I guess starting at home, though, I felt like the way I got connected into the department was starting with um, our physician who was our medical student education director. Um, She is a phenomenal clinician, a phenomenal physician, and an amazing person. Um, And she was just a wealth of knowledge. And I think if your school has that, that's a great place to start because they typically have the inside scoop on what projects are going on and the best people to get connected with. And so I think that's always a good starting place, a good starting place in terms of getting connected at your home program. With my away rotation, I was lucky enough to have a few connections because I rotated in the city where I grew up. And so that helped a lot. Um, But I think a big thing that I did that I would recommend to students who haven't done their aways yet is reaching out to someone in that program at the beginning, whether it's the PD or the chair and ask the sit down and have a meeting and kind of discuss your intentions and how excited you are about the program and what your goals are for this rotation. It's also a nice time to kind of ask and line up the whole recommendation letter request if that's something that you plan to do in the future, just so that you let them know that that is something you hope for and something that you would like to prove to them that you are worth writing a good letter for. I didn't do too much in terms of reaching out to programs where I didn't rotate in terms of getting to know like the PD or the chair. I think a big part of the day 
of interviews is really establishing those relationships and trying to stand out from the pack of all these fantastic applicants. And I think, and who knows if they still do this, I might make myself sound ancient, but when I was interviewing, they were still doing all the happy hours and the meet and greets either before the interview or after the interview. And I think that's a really great time to let your personality shine, share some unique features about yourself and, and really make a a lasting memory on a lot of the residents. And then in the interviews, you know, everyone has a different style of interviewing, but I found that people appreciate passion, they appreciate authenticity. And so really, in terms of connecting with faculty, I found that was really one of the best places because it's uninterrupted time for tell pe- to tell people what is so great about you and what makes you you and what makes your application special. And so I, I try to take advantage of those opportunities the most, but I didn't do too much in terms of reaching out to programs outside of that that I did not rotate with, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And I did want to touch on the the tangent that you had earlier about um, when you're on away rotations, sort of requesting a letter if, if that is the particular situation that you're in. Whenever I met with the medical student director, she had recommended to me to wait until after applications were due to do um, away rotations so I could spend more time with the department, with the, with the con being I wouldn't get a letter of recommendation from that program versus doing it before applications were due you could have a chance for a letter, but maybe maybe there's like a higher volume of rotators. Where do you stand on that uh, particular decision point? Yeah, yeah, that's tricky. You know, you're weighing the pros and cons there. And I actually received that same advice about rotating a little bit later. I did not rotate, however, after applications were due. So I was rotating during September. So I actually think I submitted my application while I was on my away rotation And I think because it was kind of after the big um, flood of rotating medical students that I was only one of two or three students there at the time. And I did get a lot of one-on-one time with faculty. And so I think I kind of split the middle of those two stances that you were talking about, Grace, in that I was there later. I got a lot of time, but I also was able to get that letter. It was a little bit last second, but because I think I requested, I put it on the physician's mind early in the rotation that it wasn't, it didn't feel too, too rushed by the end of the rotation when they had um, gotten to know me a little bit better and started to write the letter. But, you know, I, I think you can go either way. And I think if you are someone that loves your rec letters from your home institution, or at least loves the people that are writing them, you feel really confident in those. I don't know that you will miss out by doing a late rotation. But if you only have one or two dermatology letter writers at your home institution, or you don't have a home dermatology program, rotating before applications are due can be really helpful to get that final dermatology letter for you. Right. That makes sense. It is a process. And especially with dermatology kind of being now known as one of the hardest specialties to match into and just such a grueling process that requires a lot out of you as a medical student. I mean, I hear, I hear attendings that I work with now say all the time, man, I don't know that I would get into dermatology again if I went to apply just because these days the pressure and the the expectations are so high, which is so incredible once you've made it because you are just surrounded by phenomenal people. But there is one thing that I took away from my college soccer experience. Well, many things, but one thing that I continue to reflect on that one of my coaches would always say, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. 
And I think that is so true in medicine because our knowledge body is ever expanding and you are constantly learning more and changing your practice and adapting to the newest evidence-based practices. And so I don't know that I will ever feel fully comfortable in my knowledge base, but you have to be okay with that and know that in that you are growing and changing and adapting and becoming better. And so I think that applies throughout all components of our medical training, even into your late years of being an attending. You know, I think the further you go in medicine, the more you realize you don't know, which is both. I mean, I don't know a lot right now. And I'm. <laughs> Uh, yes, I yes, I I am with you there. And I think I just think it's really cool just to see how great our medical knowledge base has become. Right. While you were finalizing your application, how did you decide which programs to apply to? I know you were you mentioned that you were couples matching and we actually do have a an episode that we released sort of recently on the experience of couples matching but from your perspective yeah. um, i'm curious to to hear about what all factored into your decision process yeah you know i couples matching was a huge huge factor because my husband was matching or applying into neurosurgery. And so we had a pretty dang tough match there. And our number one priority was ending up in the same city. So if that meant we were traveling up to the most, most Northwestern corner of the United States in order to be in the same city, we were going to do it. So we applied pretty much everywhere. We did not apply to California and Texas. And that was only because we had been given the advice that if we weren't super motivated to go to those states and we didn't have any geographic or personal ties that it wasn't necessarily worth it just because those are there are a lot of competitive programs in those two states and like their um, own countries <laughs> right right exactly and a lot of the times they end up keeping students that are in those states you know and so we just didn't have a strong tie we didn't feel super motivated so we just kind of chose those two states as places that we weren't going to apply to for better or for worse i don't know um, that's a very personal decision that everyone has to make up their own mind on. And, and the game's different now than it was when I applied because I only had three dermatology, I'm forgetting the terminology, but I think tokens. So I could only token three programs. And so I think in this day and age where you guys now get to token 20 something programs, it's different. You know, I think because you have more tokens, that is going to be more realistic that kind of you're going to get most of your interviews from where you token. And I think that will allow you to cut down on a lot of those ancillary programs. I can't even tell you when I was looking back through my application, how many programs I applied to that I'd never heard of. And so I do think that this whole token tokening and signaling process is actually going to be a good thing and cut down on how many programs you have to apply to. Because when I was going through even just two years ago, I felt like I still kind of had to apply everywhere. And part of that was because of couples matching, but part of that was just because of the competitiveness of Derm and not being able to tell too many programs that they were really a place that I was very interested in. I'm really glad that the increase in the number of tokens has greatly alleviated like the financial burden that this whole yes. process has been known to be associated with for so mm -hmm. long. Um, and I know this might be wishful thinking, but I'm hoping in the future that uh, we can round up the number of tokens because ortho's got 30, you know, we're dermis 28. <laughs> add those extra two in there. Right. Time. We've got a match. We've got a match. <laughs> exactly. Because like, who wants to reapply? That's, you know, going through the whole process yeah. again. That's, you know, 
Yeah, it is it is tough to think that you're working this hard, you're going through all these months of anxieties and this high pressure to perform in every interview, and then you have to repeat it. But I'll tell you what, the people I know that applied multiple times, sure, it was tough, and it was not fun. And it was far from ideal, but they are really happy they did it. So for those of you that are reapplying or are worried about having to reapply, just know that things typically work out in the end. And if you keep working hard and you're passionate about what you're doing, something is going to fall into place for you. Right, right. The process will work itself out. Like yeah. as long as you, as long as you do your part and things that, you know, things will work out. And it's like, no matter how optimistic that sounds, it is, it is true. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. How did you feel going into the like going into match day itself. Oh man. I feel like that was yesterday. I remember <laughs> driving over to the location where we open our envelopes with my husband. And you know, I think we had really been like we did everything we could. Once like our rank list was in, we were like what's done is done. We worked as hard as we could. We prepared for the interviews. We spoke our minds. We shared our passions like we were just at peace and the work was done. And then I remember this moment of driving over of being like, oh my God, this is not only the next four years of my life, but the next seven years of my husband's life. And then this could be us living in the same city or apart. And we were planning to get married two months after match day. And so there was a lot of emotions, a lot of emotions, um, even through to opening up that letter. Anxiety has definitely run high, but it is paralleled and mirrored by that much excitement as well, just knowing that everything you have done is finally coming to fruition. Um, and so we were fortunate to open those letters and be located in the same city and the program that we both loved and was so near and dear to our hearts. So I, I definitely was one of the lucky ones. Um, but gosh, the emotions are running high. I think that's the only way I can leave that question. <laughs> We were stoked to be at Ohio State. Yeah. Um, it is just such a great program, both for dermatology and neurosurgery. And it was where we did medical school and have family and my family is close by. So yeah, I mean, to say we are ecstatic is an understatement. What yeah. would you say to your past self in, in medical school? Or I know there's not been that much time that has passed or even your your past self in uh, yeah. in undergrad. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I... I think that medicine is a tough field for so many reasons. You know, we, we put in so much work and so much time and we make so many sacrifices to go out into the world and care for people that aren't always thankful. And, you know, I think it's hard to remember at times why you came into this field in the beginning. And so I think the things that I would remind myself going through this pipeline and this process is just always to remember your why Remember your passions, remember what is important to you and what drove you into the medical field in the first place. And then in that, just know that the work and the dedication is rewarded. You know, you're not putting in these endless hours and this endless time to come for nothing to come of it. Something great will come of it. And so just keep working, keep going. And then I think the last thing that is so, so important and that I continue to learn and continue to have to remind myself is that life is in the present and it's not about that next step. You know, in undergrad, it was always like, okay, well, once I get through the MCAT, 
then I, then I can apply and feel better. Okay. Once I apply and like get interviews and get accepted, then I'll feel better. And then medical school, it starts all over again, you know, like it's your, your um, didactic years and it's all those exams and it's your shelf exams and your third year rotations and your clinical competency evaluations. And it's just like one thing after another that you could like always be looking forward to that next thing. And so enjoy your moment, live in that moment. There's something great and beautiful about each step in that timeline even if it does come with a few less glamorous things. So just hold on to those little pieces of happiness and really enjoy your time and your years because the, the journey is just as important as the end, the end, the end game, I would say. Cause even after you become an attending, who knows, like, you know, the next step is to, you know, get this position if you're in an academic facility or to get this amount of money, you know, whatever stage you're in right now, make these the best years of your life. That's, that's exactly like where, where the exactly. energy should be. Yeah. You're never going to regret finding those moments of joy and happiness and allowing yourself to celebrate the small wins. It's never going to be a regret that you have down the line. So right. I think you said Absolutely. it well. And I'm wondering if you have any final advice for applicants in general, anyone who's decided on Durham relatively late or just any life advice, any, any of the above? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I feel like I'm just spewing things left and right. So take, take all of this as you will, but you know, one of the funniest things that I thought about this time in applications was everyone who, whether it was parents, family, friends outside of the medical field, or even your advisors within the medical field, everyone was like, wow, such an exciting time. And I was like, yeah, but I'm also really stressed. And so I think just in general, you know, be excited. This is such a wild ride. You have so much excitement for the future and the possibilities that are to come. Sadness that another chapter with amazing friends is coming to a close, but really like, you know, the pride that you've made it here. And so I would just say embrace it to everyone out there. Enjoy this time. Fourth year is a magical golden period where you get to do a lot of fun things. And so live it up. But also, if you are a third year or a second year, wherever you are, and you're still in that grind, and you're still working hard, just know that that is temporary. And that balance does not always mean your days are 50% personal and 50% work or school. Some days are going to be 90% school and 10% life. And then the pendulum is going to swing in the opposite direction. And so balance does not always mean 50-50. It's okay for some days to be all life and some days to be all school. You're going to find that balance over time. And just give yourself grace. And I will hop off my soapbox there because I could continue. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, especially now going going through fourth year it's and, and application uh, things and whatnot, I'm in the mindset of just having as much fun with the process as possible. Even though it is inherently stressful, we can't deny that. There's so many opportunities. You know, it's it's just awesome getting to yes. just become a doctor. Like we're, we're, yep. we're getting there. Yep. I remember walking in the intern year and being like, wow, you know, you work, you work hard in intern year, you work a lot of hours, you do some things that you don't necessarily want to do, especially as a prelim, you're not in your specialty yet. But goodness, it is so cool to be a doctor and to care for people, and to be someone that your patients lean on and look to. And I think that was the first time I really got to experience that. Because I feel I think and maybe this was just me, I didn't fully experience that as a medical student, but truly as an intern, you are that primary doctor for that patient, especially when you have patients at the end of life or new diagnoses. It is so moving. And wow, those years of medical school are so worth that experience. Absolutely. 
Just out of curiosity, how much sleep did you get during your intern year? <laughs> I'm a person that can function on a little bit less sleep. Same, that is something my husband always gets very jealous of. But <laughs> I would say I was averaging like six hours a night, roughly, just because I'm, I'm not a nine o'clock bedtimer. That's not me. It's not in my bones. It's not in my genes. But some people can do that. But but you're typically waking up around 5 a.m., at least for the type of program I was at. So you got to go to bed early. Right. Makes sense. I have a bonus question for you, <laughs> as if that wasn't already a bonus question. <laughs> when I've worked with you during my rotation at the Ohio State Dermatology. Correct um, pronunciation. Yes. <laughs> um, I've noticed that you've had, you, you just have a really positive attitude that, you know, it's it's very contagious positive attitude, and it just made the experience all all the more better than it already was to begin with. Where does that positive attitude come from? How and and how do you um, continue to maintain that despite how stressful your training can get at times? Well, I I really appreciate you saying that. It's definitely something I work hard to do. I think there, you know, in medicine, we inherently see people that are sick and are not at their best, and Positivity is not always the the right medicine for everyone, but I find that in the vast majority of cases, if you can elicit a smile or at least elicit a single joyful interaction with the patient, it goes a really long way. And I get a lot of reward from those types of interactions. And so I, I guess part of it is that I feel good about it, but I also hope that it, it brings a little bit of light to my patient's day as well. And so, you know, I don't know quite the source of that, but I do know that it, it benefits both me and my patients. And so it's just been something that's been easy to carry forward because of that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's even easier to do on pediatric dermatology as well. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, um, that's, that's where we rotated um, together. And, yes. you know, even just playing with the kids to make it easier for you to do your physical exam on them, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yep. You got to find a way to look at those spots without them realizing sometimes. Gabby, thank you so much again for being on the DIGA podcast again. Um, of course. Thank you so, so much for having me and good luck to all of you out there listening and applying into dermatology in the next year or so. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the DIGA podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to dermeinterestpod at gmail.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 